Yesterday I was at Costco with Christy. It was the best kind of Costco trip because I got to wait in the car. I feel like these days I'm preparing for my next career as an Uber driver. But she went in and, and ran a quick errand in Costco and came back and she talked about how crowded it was and she also acknowledged uh, the atmosphere was kind of one of, uh, I think the way she described it was a holly, um, um, holiday days. It's like people seem like they're kind of just in shell shock after the busyness of the holidays, the post-holiday blues perhaps. I don't know, or maybe it's just relief that uh, it's nearly over. I'm not sure about that. One sense... Uh, in one sense, today is just another morning and evening, just another day. But in another sense, it's more. Uh, a year ends today, and a new one begins. And even though that's artificial, it's just driven by a calendar, whenever that decision was made centuries ago, there's still a level of significance to it. We mark these days. They are markers in our lives. We think about the year that has passed and we consider perhaps the year to come. We look back with gratitude at the great things that happened, at God's kindnesses to us in so many ways, in his providence and in his special grace, God's kindness to it. Perhaps some of us look back with a level of regret. We also look forward. We look forward with a sense of anticipation, of perhaps expectation, maybe even excitement at the opportunities of a new year. It's also possible that from time to time we have a sense of dread or maybe even fear. But there is a sense in which, and I want to lead your thinking along this path this morning, that a day like today is much like every Sunday. It's an opportunity for us to hit reset. It's an opportunity for us to evaluate where we are, to recognize where we've been and to consider where we're going and to restart. It's the last Sunday of a year, and it's a great opportunity for us to evaluate where we are spiritually, not only individually, but perhaps we could say even as a church family, to evaluate where we are and what God has done for us and what God will do in the future. Reset. We don't have any kids this year at Christmas, and so it's been a year of reset at our house. Let me tell you what that looks like. I've been informed that all the closets and our shed, we have a shed, not a garage, it's all going to be cleaned out. It's all going to be organized. So there you go. Reset. But what about resetting our lives? What about the closets of our lives? What about the places in our lives where we've tucked things away that we don't want to think about, we don't want to deal with? That's what closets are for, right? What would it look like to reset our lives? This coming year, beginning this morning, we're going to work our way through the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. And that might seem counterintuitive to apply the oldest narrative of history to our troubled world contemporary lives. But those of us that understand the importance of God's word, we recognize indeed it's appropriate to go to the beginning and the record of the beginnings to understand where we are now and where we will go in the future. 
So in your Bibles, please turn to Genesis 1. And it's easy to tell you the page of the Pew Bible. It's page 1 in the Pew Bible. (laughs) Open your Bibles to Genesis 1. We're going to work our way through this book. It will likely take all of the year, if not more. Uh, Our plan is to walk through it, not necessarily verse by verse in the sense of of only two or three verses a sermon. Uh, We'll walk through it narrative by narrative, which is the way I think the Bible is to be understood. And so we will walk through the incredible stories and the narratives that we find in the book of Genesis. And as I'm going to show you this morning, there are so many practical, contemporary, up-to-date implications and applications from this most ancient of books. It's an astonishing book. Uh, Historians tell us that there are no other ancient Near East documents that come close to the book of Genesis. In its detail, in its approach, in its acknowledgement of one true creator. And what we find in Genesis is foundational to the rest of the Bible. The psalmist said it this way. It's a great reminder. We'll likely revisit this text several times over the next couple of months. From Psalm 90, the psalmist says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth and or ever, you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. This is the nature of reality. That before anything else was, God is. And he is our God. So looking at the book of Genesis, let me give you some specifics. The name of the book, Genesis, represent the first words of the book in Hebrew. Genesis reflects a Greek translation of the Hebrew, and it essentially is the word that means origins. This is the origins. This is the record of the beginning, as it were. The first words of chapter 1 in the beginning represent the name of the book, Genesis, and it is the genesis of all that we know. The author of the book of Genesis Well, as in all of Holy Scripture, there's a paradox here. These are two truths that we hold in tension. We find these paradoxes all the way through theology, and we find it when we talk about the author of Genesis. Because, first of all, there is a human author. His name is Moses. I I could have taken time this morning to walk you through all of the texts that refer in the Bible to Moses as the author of Genesis and the first five books of the Bible, the other four books of what are called the Pentateuch, the first five books. But I'm not going to do that. I'll tell you this. In the Old Testament, there are over 15 specific references that clarify that Moses is the author of the book of Genesis. And in the New Testament, including the words of Jesus himself, there are over 15 references. I could take the time to go through them. We won't do that. But Moses, according to Scripture itself, Moses is the author of Genesis. But we also recognize when we talk about Scripture, it's not just Moses. Because we recognize that Scripture is the revelation of God himself. And so when you talk about the author of Scripture, any text of Scripture, you have Moses as the author, and you also have God as the author. And that is not a contradiction. It's a paradox that we hold in tension. And the way this works is that Moses was used by God in his human personality. This is, do not think of this as a dictation, like on your phone. Like, you know, you put on what, text, text, voice to text, you know, and you hit a button and your phone, in theory, is supposed to translate what you say, right? 
Some people, they seem to think of inspiration that way. That the, Moses sat down with his scroll or however he would have written centuries ago and he was in a trance and God just moved his hand. That's not what we believe about the human authorship of scripture. We believe that God used Moses' personality, his background, his perceptions, his experiences, his language. We believe that, Moses, that God used Moses in his humanity, but through the Holy Spirit guided what Moses would write about and protected Moses from recording error. We believe that about Moses. We believe it about Samuel. We believe it about the psalmist. We believe it about all of the New Testament, the apostles. We believe this is the way God has given us his word through human authors using their personality, but superintending that in such a way that it is supernatural and divine in its effect. And so we believe about the book of Genesis, that the author is indeed Moses, but also the author is God. And by the way, it needs to be God because if you think about it, God's the only eyewitness. You ever thought about that? Especially chapters one and two. God is the only eyewitness. And so we have a record of what God has done in creation. Let me show you one other thing that will show up over the course of the next year. Uh, look over in chapter two for just a moment. Uh, look with me in verse 4. You have a, a formula that shows up over and over again in the book of Genesis. It says there in verse number 4 of chapter 2, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day of the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. These are the generations. And that's a formula that you find repeated regularly throughout the book of Genesis, and it kind of serves as a marker of a, the end of one section and the beginning of a new section. And so you'll find that all the way through the book. But listen carefully. Regardless of those markers through the book, here's what you find in the book of Genesis. You find the foundations, you find the beginnings of identity. You find the origin of gender. You find the nature of marriage. You find the way that we should think about the environment. You find the initiation of labor. You find the nature of family. You find the principles of law and order. In fact, you find the foundational principles of justice. For anyone who thinks that the Bible, or perhaps what we do here on a Sunday morning in a church like ours, is not applicable to life. Think about that list. We find in Genesis the foundational principles of identity and gender and marriage and the environment and labor and family and law and order and justice. And I could add to that worship and everything else. And that's what we'll build upon this year. We'll find in the book of Genesis the beginnings of all of these. It's an appropriately titled book, Origins. Genesis, the beginnings. Let me give you some cautions, though, because some of you, you've been around this kind of thing for a while, and a handful of you, this perhaps is new to you. So let me give you some cautions. The first is this. We will have humility regarding speculations or novelties. Uh, I'm going to give you definitive answers to very few itchy questions. You know what itchy questions are? They're the ones you want scratched, all right? And I'm not going to be able to give you the kind of answers that perhaps you want. 
about some of those speculative or novel kinds of questions. I can't tell you what the forbidden fruit was. We think it's an apple because that's what people have always said, but the Bible doesn't say that. I can't really explain in depth the nature of the sons of God in chapter 6, which is a favorite passage for people that love the Bible and they want to talk about mysteries. We'll get there in a few months, but the sons of God, some of you are afraid I'd say a couple of years. <laughs> It'll be a matter of weeks, I think. We'll get to the sons of God. I can't give you the details of the ark. I can't answer all of your questions about how God miraculously provided for Noah and all of the animals. I don't know the answers to those things, and where I don't know the answers, I'm not going to speculate. Yeah, I might speculate, but not with any kind of uh, arrogance. So humility regarding novelties. Secondly, there'll be some humility regarding our interpretations. Let me tell you what I mean by that. It's somewhat cringeworthy to me when pastors who teach or preach Genesis act as though they are experts in geology or astronomy or physics. I am not any of those. And so I won't stand here pretending to explain perhaps what might be apparent contradictions between contemporary ideas about geology or astronomy or physics. I'm not trained in that. I'm not going to profess to speak with any kind of authority to those things. There's a level of humility when we come to those things. So a level of humility about novelties, a level of humility about interpretations. But in case I just made some of you nervous, I also say there's a level of humility regarding authority. It's just as cringeworthy. I told you it was cringeworthy to me when a pastor speaks as though he's a geologist or a physicist or an astronomer. It's just as cringeworthy when geologists and astronomers and physicists act as though they have more authority than God in his word. That's a dangerous thing. To, to, set, to set some kind of science, the science, right? We've heard a lot about the science over the last few years. To set the science over scripture. That doesn't mean we can answer all of the questions. It doesn't mean we have a definitive explanation. It doesn't mean necessarily, here's where there's humility involved, that we have to, to throw out every kind of scientific opinion. But it does mean that we have to ask ourselves, where's our ultimate authority? The critics go about dismantling the unity of the book of Genesis. They reject it as a, as a record of history. And in doing so, they it's as though they're dismantling and destroying the forest by picking apart the trees. God has given us a record of history in Genesis. We don't understand it all. There are places where we can't answer all of the questions for contemporary scientific theories and how that measures up to the book of Genesis. And I won't pretend to answer all those questions, but I also won't bow my knee to contemporary opinions about geology, astronomy, or physics. You see, we all come to the text with assumptions, with biases. But we also come with, with presuppositions, and presuppositions are legitimate. The question you have to ask yourself is, is, what are your presuppositions? In your heart of hearts, here's the question. In your heart of hearts, who is sovereign? In your heart of hearts, who has authority? Is it the science, capital T, capital S, or is it the Word of God? And those are issues that we'll struggle with as we look through Genesis. 
And the question is, who is sovereign? And the one who is sovereign is the creator. That brings us to the second section this morning. We want to consider this creator. And so look with me in Genesis 1, verse number 1. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This creator, the, the term God here is the Hebrew term Elohim. It is a plural word. It is a generic word for deity. You say, well, that's a little bit confusing. It's not really, because it's the same way we use the term God. We use the term God to speak of our God, but we also recognize that it can be used for other gods. It can be used for some concept of God. It is, in a sense, a generic word. In context, it is appropriately used for the true God, the creator. In other contexts, we use it with little g instead of capital G because we're talking about pretend gods or idols or false gods or whatever. Elohim is the same way. It's a plural term, which was basically, in the ancient world, it was a generic term for heavenly beings or powerful men or ones who rule or ones who have sovereignty. It was used in all those different ways. It is a plural term, but it is used in Genesis 1 with a singular verb. And the idea is this, that the one true God, the God above all gods, created the heavens and the earth. Some of you want me to talk now about the Trinity, the hint of the triunity there. That is not necessarily in the plural nature of Elohim, but we're going to find hints of the Trinity when we walk through the narratives. We find evidences, hints of the triune nature of God himself. The creator, let me emphasize two characteristics of the creator. There are so many more. But the first I'd say is this, the creator is personal. He is personal. As opposed to some kind of nebulous force. As opposed to to half of a balanced dualism, you know, evil and good, and two sides of the force, the idea that matter is evil and spirit is good. This is not the God presented in Genesis 1, as opposed to, to everything, the idea that God is everything, that we are God and, and we are in God and God is everything that exists. That's the doctrine of pantheism. No, this text does not allow that. God is personal. The creator is personal. He speaks. He acts. We read in Jeremiah chapter 9, remember this text? Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, watch this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. The personal nature of God. A force doesn't do that. First of all, a force doesn't say you can understand and know me. But a, a force also does not say and could not relate in a sense of practicing love and justice and righteousness. All right, this creator is personal. And we'll dive into this more over the next few weeks, but if you'll think about this for a moment, it's not that we have projected personality onto the creator. In other words, we are people, we are persons, and therefore in our perception of the creator, we have projected our sense of personality onto the creator. That's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches, and we'll see it in the matter of a couple of weeks, and it will be just a couple of weeks, we're going to see this, that our personality reflects the personality of the creator. That we are made in his image, and our sense of being 
The, the idea that we can will, that we can think, that we can desire, all of that is reflective of God himself where God says, let us make man in our image, in the image and likeness of God. This creator is personal. This creator is also powerful. There's omnipotence here. How powerful? Look back at the verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's the beginning of time. In the beginning. It's the beginning of space. God created the heavens. And also, it's the beginning of matter. Here in one verse, you have God, through his word, speaking the beginning of time, the beginning of space, the beginning of matter. This is the great God, the creator. In the ancient Near East, when these words were first written down, there was a tendency to embrace the idea that either the universe was eternal or a pantheism, that the universe itself is God. This text denies both of these. There's a true God who is apart from his creation, yet he is sovereign over it. He is the creator. And this is a, it's almost if I could, if I could use, in a sense, an ironic illustration. This is a Copernican revolution of concept. Because you are not the center of creation. Mankind is not the center of the universe. You are not the center of all reality. Genesis 1 reestablishes where the center is, that God is the one who created the heavens of the earth. The universe is theocentric, not anthropocentric. It's God-centered, not man-centered. And that in and of itself, do you see how applicable and appropriate thinking that through is for the, our day and time? Because in our culture and in our own hearts and sinfulness sometimes, Everything is driven by the idea that it ought to be the way we want it to be, right? That we make our own decisions, that no one externally imposes anything upon us, that we are free moral agents. How often have you heard that phrase? And in the middle of all that, Genesis 1 comes like a semi, destroying our pretensions. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is our creator. Well, that's what he is. He's personal and he's powerful. He's personal and powerful. Let me show you what he isn't, what he isn't. First of all, this creator isn't needy. He isn't needy. There is a self-sufficiency in God. The New Testament talks about this in Acts chapter 17. The God who made the world and everything in it, see that? The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God doesn't need, God gives. It's not that, as you sometimes have heard in such a shallow, again, anthropocentric way, that God was lonely, and so he created Adam and Eve. No, no, no. There is no need in God. He is self-sufficient. The creator isn't needy. And so the Bible affirms this even at the end of the Bible. In Revelation 4, you remember this text? Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The creator is not needy. And his kindness to us is how he is the motivation for him to show his glory. His love and kindness to us 
He demonstrates his glory. If you have any question about that, go read John 17 this afternoon as Jesus is praying on the night of his betrayal before his crucifixion and he prays about the ultimate goal of all of what he's doing is that his glory might be displayed, the glory of God might be put on display. There's a theocentric truth to that, not that God is needy. And Genesis awakens us to the reality once again that we are not the center of the universe. This creator isn't needy. Also, this creator isn't limited. He is unlimited. And again, we've said some of these things already, but he has a sense of of eternality. He's not subject to time. He is above and beyond time. He created time, as it were. He is above and beyond any knowledge. He is omniscient. There's nothing that he does not know. He's omnipresent. There's no place his presence doesn't fill And as we've already seen, he is omnipotent. There's nothing he cannot do. He isn't limited. And this causes Paul in 1 Timothy 6 to write this. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. This is the creator He is not needy. He is not limited. And yet, despite even what we just read, one more thing, he is not hidden. He is not hidden. Even though we cannot see him in the sense of his true spirit being, because we are limited in this physical world, he nevertheless reveals himself. As Francis Schaeffer famously said in the 70s, he is there and he is not silent. He has made himself known in nature and in history and in our minds, our consciences, and in Christ especially, and then in the word of God, he has revealed himself. He did not have to do so. He chose to do so for his glory and for our good. And Genesis is the initiation of all of that. Left to ourselves, he would be hidden. Our creatureness could not have apprehended him, but God has graciously revealed himself. And so we can never know him, at least in this life, we can never know him fully or completely, but we can know him truly. And that's because he has made himself known in creation, in history, in our conscience, in our minds, but especially in Christ and in the word. We can know him truly. This is the great creator. This is the God that we worship He is personal and powerful. He is not needy, limited, or hidden. And that is the assurance we have as we look at the book of Genesis and as we think about our God. So let me drive to the conclusion by an overview of what you can look for. If you're part of our church, in the course of the next year, we'll be looking at these truths. If you read the book of Genesis, if you're going to do a read through the Bible in a year, you'll start at Genesis. So here's some things to watch for, all right? What to watch for in the book of Genesis? First, watch for this. Man has fallen. Watch for the reality that man has fallen. This is opposed to the idea that mankind is just, you know, pretty good. Uh, We need to be careful of the, the theology that's driven by this cliche. Nobody's perfect. You know, nobody's perfect. The way that is typically used is as a pass 
to cover over our guilt and our sin. And what you find in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, is you find this glorious story of God's creation, and you get to chapter 3, and you think, this is just an astonishing, astonishing demonstration of beauty and power and glory. And then in chapter 3, there's 50 chapters. Chapter 3, it goes off the rails. And what we find is the beginning of a litany of narratives about how sinful and fallen people like you and I, like you and me, like we are. We're fallen. It's in our nature. It's not that we're fallen because we sin, but what we find out is that we we sin because we're fallen. And from the very beginning, in Genesis, you have this beginning to be played out with the fall. And there are mysteries about the fall. We'll, We'll work through that, but the reality is this, immediately, what do you have in the first family? You have the first murder. And then you have society which goes completely to hell in a handbasket, to where God judges the earth with the flood. And then you get to the other side of the flood and you think, well, now, here, now there's going to be a good beginning. And what do you find? You find sin within Noah's own family with his sons who have just been delivered from God's judgment. And then you have the nature of the Tower of Babel and the pride and the hubris that goes along with that. And then you get to chapter 12 and you think, well, now it's going to change because God zeroes in on one family. And as you're reading, you're thinking, now we're going to look at one family and they're going to get it right. You know the story. Abraham. And Abraham is such a faithful one. He's called a friend of God and yet he's fallen. And he makes grievous errors, mistakes. There's another word for that, right? Sins. And then you get to Jacob and you think, well, maybe Jacob will, or Isaac, you think, well, maybe Isaac will be better or no. And Jacob, well, maybe Jacob will be better. No way. And then the 12 sons of Jacob and the betrayal of Joseph. And you get to, you go through the entire book And you find it is a litany of narratives that show the reality of sinfulness. Watch for that. Now, by the way, that might sound grim. Hold on, because there's good news as well. But as you go through Genesis, watch for the fact that man is fallen. Secondly, watch for sin as pervasive. Sin is pervasive. I just gave you an account. But sin touches everything. And and this is as opposed to the idea of sin as just some kind of, of fault or, or disability. It's that sin is a cancer. Sin is a virus that infects everything. We will look at this, but the fall, the nature of the fall was catastrophic. I'm convinced, I'm getting way ahead of myself here, I'm convinced that much of our inability to reconcile what we see in the natural world and what the Bible records is as a result that everything changed with the fall. Everything. Down to our DNA was corrupted. The sin, rebellion, taints, pollutes, perverts everything. And therefore families designed by God for our good, but they're the source of great heartache. And social structures, a good gift of God, but you often find corruption and abuse. 
You find it all the way through because sin is pervasive in every system in this broken world. And if we're not serious about that, if we're not serious about that, we will be desperately confused and discouraged when the hardships of life come our way. Sin and its effects, the fall, all of it is pervasive. You've heard it before. Genesis begins with Adam in paradise and it ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. That's the effects of sin. Begin in paradise. Genesis 50 ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. And what you find is you find chapters 1 and 2, if you'll think about it, and read them. Read them this week. Especially you'll read them tomorrow if you begin, you know, through the year Bible reading plan. In chapters 1 and 2, you have the orderly creation of God in creation to where there's this glory. And then in chapter 3, everything begins to disintegrate. There's this disorder. It's a tsunami of disorder. It's, it's, a, it's a viral spread of heartache, the viral effects of disobedience. And we still experience these in our own lives. Sin as pervasive. Watch for that as we work through Genesis. Third, watch for God as faithful. God as faithful. In the ancient world, you know what deities were like. They were flawed. They were emotional. They were whimsical. They were fickle. They were carnal. That's the nature of the gods in all the ancient cultures. You come to the God of the Hebrews revealed in Scripture, you find a God who is steadfast, who is faithful, who is never at the mercy of his creation. Let me say that again. He is never at the mercy of his creation. He is sovereign, is what we're saying. And therefore, despite everything that I've just said, despite the fallenness of man, and despite the pervasiveness of sin, God is faithful in accomplishing his purposes, in his way, in his time. God is faithful. And Genesis shows us this. And as you read through the book of Genesis, you come to these narratives and you think, well, God's finally fed up here. I mean, God's done. And you read the Noah story, it really looks that way, doesn't it? And yet you find that even though sin is pervasive and man has fallen, that God is faithful through it all. And you'll find that over and over again. And the story, when it turns dark, and, and even sometimes when we think, well, here's a positive turn, sin and rebellion shows up again. But God is faithful. People are abused. God is forsaken. But you still see the faithfulness of God. And the truth is, this is really, and here I'm giving away the whole sermon series right here. This is the whole point of the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis works this way. By the way, just a personal story. In my ordination interrogation, which is an ordeal they go through when they ordain you, they ask all these questions to make sure that you know your stuff. And so they asked me to outline the book of Genesis. And I, you know, been raised in church. I was pretty confident. And I started out creation. I went through the book of Genesis. And they looked at me when I was done. And they said, 
did you leave anything out? And I was cocky and confident. I said, no, it's a book of Genesis. I left the flood out, which is a pretty important event <laughs> in the book of Genesis. But you have Genesis, you have Genesis beginning with creation and then going through a significant amount of time to the flood and then from the flood to Babel. And then it, it zeroes in on the life of Abraham, but it's still covering a lot of ground. And you, you go into chapters, you know, uh, chapter 12 begins the story of Abraham. Abraham goes uh, along to about chapter, what, 20, 23, 24. And then there's the story of Isaac and the story of Jacob. And so you're moving pretty quickly. And then what happens right around Genesis 39 is all of a sudden, it's like there's a, there's a screech of the brakes. And Moses stops and he takes the rest of the book, one quarter of the book, to describe the story of Joseph in great detail. Now, why is Joseph given so much real estate in the book of Genesis? Because Genesis is not about Joseph. But why is there so much detail? We're going to find this. Let me tell you what I believe the reason for that is. Because you get to the end of the story of the book of Joseph, and remember, the story of Joseph is that he went through great trial and great abuse and went through great suffering in order to be at a place where he could deliver the people of God. And at the end of the book of Genesis, here's what Joseph, uh, Joseph says. His brothers are afraid that now that their father has finally died, his brothers are afraid that he's going to take revenge on them for betraying him. And he says, do you remember what he says? Genesis 50. We, we quoted a lot around here. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. There's a tension again. How can that be? How can it be that something that people mean for evil, that God is going to use that to accomplish good? How does that work? And what the book of Genesis does, it sets up that reality. Because folks, let me tell you, that's a fundamental truth of life. If you think life here is about everything going so well, so that you'll get to the point of the end of your life and you'll say, I never had a problem. You haven't read the Bible. And you also haven't looked at reality. But what Genesis does, it sets as a standard, it sets an understanding and a declaration of the faithfulness of God. Despite the pervasiveness of sin and the fallenness of man, that God is faithful. And you get to the end of Genesis with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt, and you think, well, what's going to happen now? And then you go to Exodus, and it appears to get worse because you've got 400 years of, of slavery, and yet the people, they would have read Genesis. They would have known God's promise. They would have clung to God's promise. Man has fallen. Sin is pervasive. God is faithful. And finally, grace is unexpected. Watch for that. And that goes with everything I've said. If it had been you and I, we would have pulled the plug. We would have stopped. We would have said, we're done. But God is a gracious God. He delights in showing mercy. He delights in offering grace. Grace is unexpected. And we now understand the way he accomplishes this grace 
is through what we call the gospel. That he has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to cover the sins of all of those people in the Old Testament and our lives as well. And Jesus, at the nexus of history, comes God in flesh and offers himself as a sacrifice to cover your guilt and mine. This is the gospel. This is the way that God gives grace and still remains holy. This is the way he's a righteous judge, and yet he lets sinners off. And does he let sinners off by no price being paid? No, he pays the price himself through the life of his son. And that's the gospel, and we'll see that grace over and over and over again. Grace is unexpected. I left out one thing. I saved it for the end. Who was Genesis written to originally? It was written to us. We understand that. But in its original form, who would have been the first readers of Genesis? Well, if indeed the Bible is true that Moses has written Genesis, which we believe he did, it would have been written in the wilderness. Uh, the timeline of this is just before Joshua 1. At the end of all of the events of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is, it was written for the people of God. And who were those people? Well, they hadn't lived in Egypt. Only Caleb and Joshua and Moses were still alive from Egypt. So they had all been born where? They'd been born in the wilderness. And all they knew was living in tents. And the only food they knew, essentially, was manna and quail. Think about that. Is a limited diet. And they had lived there and wandered for 40 years. And now, never knowing a home, now they were facing their home, the promised home that God had given them. And yet they knew what was on the other side of Jordan. You know the story. There were giants there. The, the people were so numerous as what? As grasshoppers. So they were outnumbered. They were outgunned, we would say it today. They were facing something they had never known before. Where were they going to find their hope? Where, where were they going to find their faith? Where were they going to find the resources with which to obey God? Well, they, a bit of an anachronism, but let me say it this way. They would have sat down and opened the book of Genesis, and they would have read about God's intention. They would have read about how fallen people were, and they knew they were fallen as well. They would have read about the pervasive effects of sin, and they had grown up in a desert. They looked around, and they knew it. They would have recognized that their God is faithful because they would have looked down at their sandals. And remember what the Bible says? Their sandals had never worn out. And they would have looked around and they would have seen the lambs being slaughtered in the tabernacle and the blood being shed. And they would have recognized that their God was gracious if they would repent and believe. And they would have known that their God was in control from the book of Genesis. They would have known that he could be trusted from the book of Genesis. And they would have known that he must be worshipped all those truths are all the way through Genesis. That God was in control 
that God could be trusted, and that God should and must be worshipped. And I leave that for you this morning. On this New Year's Eve day, that your God is in control, your God can be trusted, your God must be worshipped. Let's pray together. Father, we embark on a study in Genesis, so there will be many mysteries. Help us not to lose sight as we struggle with mysteries and as we embrace tension, help us not to lose sight of the very real and practical applications of who you reveal yourself to be through this ancient book. That despite our sin and the pervasiveness of it, despite our fallenness, that you are a God who is faithful and you are gracious. Help us recognize this in our trials. Help us recognize this in our sin. Help us recognize this in our successes and in our joys. Help us remember it in our failings and in our troubles. Give us a clearer sense of your glory, God, as we study this wonderful book. Make yourself known to us through your word. And help us worship you at all times. In Jesus' glorious name we pray. Amen.